Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let's go in our Bibles together this morning. We're going to go to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we are in our study here of Paul's letter. He writes to the church at Philippi, and he writes to them about having this unbreakable joy. Now, today we're going to begin a two-part sermon, and the title of the message is A Plea for Unity. So here in this message, we're going to see a pastor's heart for his people, a shepherd, and how Paul viewed these people. Last week, we looked at suffering, and if you, if you think about it as a child, wouldn't you have loved it if your parents could have kept you from all suffering? <laughs> it probably would have been a pretty boring life uh, for me to not suffer if my mom and dad would have kept me from suffering. They would have to just left me in my room, and I would have suffered alone there. Okay, so as parents, we cannot keep our children from all suffering, We have to prepare them for suffering. It's a big difference. How will they be able to handle what happens in this life? Will we prepare them or will we aberrantly try to prevent suffering in their lives? It won't work. Paul wanted to prepare these people for suffering. He wanted them to be able to face each trial and have this unbreakable joy, this unstoppable joy. We must be ready for the conflict that comes outside of Christianity. That's the reality. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world are facing a constant persecution. But Paul also has a mind here and his attention is fixed on You have to be prepared for the conflict that comes within Christianity. You have to be prepared for the conflict that happens internally inside of you. And as a church, how are we prepared for the conflict that can happen inside of a church family? How are we ready for this? We're not going to prevent it, but we must be prepared for it. Perhaps the most devastating for a military, for Anyone in harm's way, law enforcement, is friendly fire. When you had your eye on the enemy and you didn't expect it to come from someone in your company and harm comes that way, that's demoralizing because you didn't expect it, you didn't see it coming. So as this text unfolds in chapter 2, Paul, he's connecting it together. All of the work that he has done preparing his people, he's still in a section, even though our Bibles are broken between chapter 1 and chapter 2. They're divided, helps us be able to you know, find where we're going in Scripture easily. But that wasn't the way it was in the letter. He's still in a thought here that really doesn't break between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he's going to lean into this disagreement that these ladies have in the church at Philippi, and he's connecting it all together that if we have been made right vertically, 
then the corresponding reality is we will endeavor to be right horizontally in our relationships. And we actually have the ability, because it's been given to us divinely, that we have been made right with God. That's our greatest need. And if that need has been met, then we will be able to humbly engage and enter into and go through conflict with folks horizontally and come out the other side, not enemies, but actually stronger friends. Wouldn't that be a testimony to the world? Is that when churches go through conflict, they come out the other side tighter, more in love with Jesus and more in love with each other. True love. Not, not just the feeling of love, but the genuine commitment to you can never offend me so much because I remember how much I've offended a, a God who is holy. And I remember what he did. And so how can you get, how can you have a fight with somebody who's overflowing with gratitude? You know, you really tick me off, so I'll lift up my hands. <laughs> praise you again and again. Like, ah, this is no fun. That's what Paul is on to here. That's what he wants. He wants them to cash it in. Realize what you've been given. Realize what's been done for you. Have you ever hiked up a mountain? You park your car at the bottom of the trail, trailhead. You look up, grab a bottle of water or two. Not a big deal. And then you start hiking that dude. And you're thinking, I've come like 20 steps. I'm already out of my water, ate all my fruit snacks, and I'm not cut out for this. But you make that hike, and you get up to that peak, and then you look back down, and you realize, my perspective is completely different now. I can see things clearly that I thought I understood. I thought we had it. But now I can look and now I understand I had to walk this, I had to hike this, and it took everything out of me and we still got to make it back down. But now you can see things differently. And where Paul is going is in this chapter, Philippians 2. And I'm not going to share that text with Stephen either. <laughs> because he's going up the mountain for Christians, which is Jesus. It's all the way to, let's, let's take this mountain, and when we look at Christ, you know where that does? We're, we're going up, we're putting our eyes on Jesus, and it actually places us in a posture of humility, unlike any other. It's not faked, it's not forced, it's not cursed. It's actually surrendered. And that's what Paul is doing with these people. He loves them. It's a pastoral letter. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, so, okay, or, or you could say, therefore, it's a connection here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
This is the word of God. So here we see a pastoral appeal for unity. A pastoral appeal for unity. And the first thing that Paul is going to lead this church through and we can go through with them is to perform a spiritual evaluation. To perform a spiritual evaluation. If you are under the sound of my voice this morning and you have repented of your sins and you, and you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to him, then what Paul is doing is he's saying, I want you to take an inventory. I want you to do an assessment. I want you to go through an evaluation. I want you to go through an appraisal. Paul is not saying, come on, people, you need to try harder. You need to do more. You need to look better. Put on a better face. He by no means is saying the often loved phrase, you just got to fake it till you make it. That's an oh me, not an amen, all right? I'll correct you. I never corrected Dave Stanley when he used to say amen at the wrong time. But Ethan, I'll get Ethan. Okay, he's not saying that. And so that's, that's, we get that, like there are times when I, I have a responsibility and I'm going to get there, but that's not a believer's mantra, fake it till you make it. It has nothing to do with Christ never faked anything and he never desired for his apostles to fake anything or his followers, his disciples, but actually to grow and address the issues where we're tempted to project hypocrisy. I want people to think I'm better than I, I want them to think I think no more than I know I no, no, we'll grow together in grace. One major factor that led to one of the last housing crises was appraisers being connected to loan officers, connected to potential house buyers, saying how much you need the house to appraise for. Well, you need it for how much? Okay. And they just walk through and do, go through the formalities and say, here you go, here's your house, it's appraised at, how much you say you need? There you go. And the way the loans went, and the interest-only loans and so forth, and it led to major crisis. So, what happened? They got serious about that. They made some changes. When appraisers come out, you actually have to appraise the house at what it's worth, because that led to a lot of people being upside down in their house and then they needed to sell and they said, wait a second, nobody's willing to pay what the bank gave me in a loan for this house. Now I'm upside down, now I'm in trouble. Now I can't make the payments. Why? Because the assessment was off. The appraisal was off. It was a, it was a made up appraisal. It, it wasn't based on reality. So. I'm using that in a contrast that we understand when Paul is asking, he's saying to those believers in Philippi, I want you to go through an evaluation. I want you to do an appraisal, but he doesn't want them to fake it. He doesn't want them to make it up. Now, I remember one of the, uh, somebody gave us, uh, when we first got married, a wedding gift, and it was a stack of marriage videotapes, uh, counseling, about this tall. Remember videotapes back in the day? All right, kids? And that was uh, one of the gifts that we uh, were given uh, by someone. And I remember out of all of those things I forgot early on in those marriage counseling sessions, I remember one thing that 
uh, Gary Smalley taught, and he had the session, and he had this old broken down violin. And in this, in front of the room, and he's meeting with couples and talking with them, and, and he pulls out this, this broken up violin, and nobody's impressed. And he, said, and he just shows it, and he's like, you know, look at this thing. And then he turns it so that you can see inside, and inside is the, the name Stradivarius. And everybody goes, oh. He said, did you catch that? What you did is not impose value on that. It has value, and you responded to the value that this instrument, handled by one of the greatest, brings to it. And he said, I want you to consider that, that you're not making up something, spouses, about your spouse, but you recognize the God-given value that your spouse is. And then you, the Lord blessed me with her. Now, I wish I would have remembered that illustration for all the years early on. I think I was listening to that illustration like, Let's play that one again, Ginger. Did you catch that? Like, <laughs> Brian, ah, you know, wow. <laughs> now, if she says amen, I'm not canceling that one, right? <laughs> You'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right. But that value, that's what Paul is going for here, is he's simply, he's not making something up. He's wanting the believer, do you understand? Do I understand what God has given to us in Christ. Because when we don't understand, then it becomes sidelined. The people of God worshiping him, our time in scripture, reading, drawing on the Lord in prayer, it all gets sideways and sidelined and we get distracted by things that are not, that's amazing. So Paul is setting before them and setting before us, do you understand what you have been given? Paul, you just came out of telling us that we've been given suffering, that that's a privilege of the gospel is suffering. How are we going to keep that clear when we're the ones, and some of you, this week has been one of those weeks of most painful suffering? You have something that can't be stolen. You have something given to you that you couldn't earn. Child of God, you have something that no one can take and you will still be appreciating its value a million years from now. And all of the temporary suffering will be behind us, but not forgotten, not diminished. So Paul doesn't show up as super Paul, making people feel guilty. You understand that? He doesn't show up saying, I'm the apostle and I'm Paul and I've suffered. What's the matter with you people? Okay, fine. He twisted my arm, smacked me down, beat me down. Okay, I feel guilty again for feeling guilty, you know, feeling guilty about feeling guilty. No. Now here Paul is saying, and in our Bibles it says, so if there is any encouragement, and you could say it if, but understand in the, in the Greek, he's actually making a statement that is since or because. It's emphatic. 
there's four motivations that he gives, and you can take it with each, and it says if, but he's saying really for the child of God, it's because. Therefore, because there is encouragement in Christ. But it's also written in such a way that I can't speak that over everybody that's here today. If you're here and, you, and you're holding to, well, I did this religious thing, I did this spiritual thing way back when, and I, and I guess I'm okay. But you don't love Jesus with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and you're clinging to the commitment, the camp thing, the other thing, the whatever thing, then Paul opens the door that says you need to evaluate, examine whether you be in the faith or not. Because if you are in Christ, this is yours. And I said it last week, if you're not in Christ, this is available to you today. But it comes at the cost of your life, surrendering to Christ, the one who surrendered his life and then took it back up again. That's a good place to surrender everything, is to him. So he says this, he says, so if or, or because or since there is, and the, and the first motivation that he gives is encouragement in Christ. Evaluate, have you been given this encouragement in Christ? When a Christian meditates on the reality that we are unworthy sinners and we have received consolation instead of condemnation, I say it often, I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve Jesus. I don't deserve you. I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve my family. I don't deserve anything except hell. When I start from there in my thinking, if I remember that and remember that and remember that, how good God has been to me, at what point can it come out of my mouth, you owe me what? I look just like the servant that Jesus said that was forgiven the immeasurable debt and went out and found the guy that owed him a day's wages and he was choking him in the neck and threw him in prison. Unthinkable was the point of that parable. Have you received encouragement in Christ? The, the word here is paraclesis. And, and it's translated come alongside. It's, it's counsel, comfort, and rebuke. So you think about there's different types of coaching. You know, some coaches, man, they just yell and yell and yell and scream and swear, ruin, you know, their athletes. But then you have coaches, you know, sit on the bench. And then you'll catch the camera, you know, panning over. And at some point, they put the athlete under their arm. Like, I've taught you this. I've told you whatever they're saying. Hey, listen, not this, but this. Okay, I'm rebuking you, but I'm exhorting you. Instruction, don't do it this way. We've practiced, we've drilled. This is the way you need to do it. If anybody wants to get better in whatever the field you're in, then you have to receive the person that comes alongside and they put their arm around you and they say, hey, let me talk to you. This is wrong. This is right. Do what's right. That's the imagery of this word. This is encouragement. This is anything but, oh, I love them, so I just don't say anything because I don't want to offend them. Who's going to hire that coach? Who's going to hire that manager? They just walk in like, great job, great job, great job. Well, we didn't need you because everybody thinks they do a great job. We have to have somebody who comes in and carries out the will of the owner of whatever it is. 
As believers, we're owned by Christ. What is his will for us, for our lives? And this word is strong in the significance. Go with me in your Bibles. It's not going to be on the screen. Back to the Gospel of John because it's, it comes from the same word where we get the promise of Jesus. John chapter 14. He promises a coming helper, counselor, comforter, same root word, paraclete, Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, look at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse 16, John 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another, here it is, helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That happens at the moment of conversion, that the Holy Spirit dwells fully in every child of God. Look at verse 26 of John 14. Jesus, again, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this paraclete, all right, the one who would come alongside would cause the apostles to remember what Jesus taught them, and he also helps us to remember what we have learned and apply it in our lives. John 15, verses 26 and 27. Jesus uses this same word again. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, you see the triune God, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. It's right there the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He, notice it's not, a, not a, a microwave force like Jehovah's Witnesses teach. He, it's a person. He will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The helper. John 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You know, just imagine if Jesus, like, how would he explain everything that they could understand and conceive it? They couldn't. So he says, but I'm going to tell you, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see the Father and the Son and the Spirit all active in conversion and in our growth? That's this word, encouragement in Christ. That being in Christ means we belong to Christ. So there's realities because, that come along with this identity for the Christian. It's a right standing before God. This brings comfort and this brings and demands exhortation. This is who a child of God is 
And this is how a child of God should now live. That's what Paul is getting to. I want you to know who you are, know what you've been given, and then he's gonna move into, therefore, here's how you live in light of this reality. Belonging. The apostles wrote about belonging this undeserved privilege of being adopted into the family of God, a privilege that comes along with re responsibilities. Romans 7, 4, Paul writes, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Well, who do we belong to? To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Do you see how that all connects? We belong to another. We belong to him, Jesus, who's been raised from the dead. Why? In order that we may bear fruit for God. That's the reason why we belong to him. And we belong to one another to bring fruit, to bear fruit for God. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, you see how this all connects together? Spirit of God, spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, love those, we don't even have to pray to have more of the Holy Spirit. You are given the Holy Spirit and it's not partially given out and you were saved by grace, but now how will you function? How will you live? And we'll see if we'll give you more. What I need to do and what you need to do is walk in the Spirit. Experience the Spirit of God. How do you, have, how do, you do that? The Word, prayer, and obedience in the fellowship of the body of Christ. Galatians 4, 6, and because Paul says you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you see the Trinity again? Father has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all active. We belong. Isn't that amazing when you see, maybe you've been there or maybe you've been adopted and there was an, I don't belong. And then at the end, I belong to this family. How incredible is this? To be in Christ. The Christians are, you ever seen the sign? Under new management. There's a new owner here. You didn't have a good experience before? Hey, they're gone, a new owner. Come on back, give it a try. We were outside of Christ, living for our own desires, for our own glory, and then Jesus met us wherever we were. We acknowledged our sinfulness to God. We believed in the gospel that tells us of Jesus Messiah and we confessed him as Lord and Savior and that places us in Christ. We belong to Christ because we have been in, placed in Christ. And so when Paul writes Romans 8, 1 and 2, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that define you today? Are you in that number? Are you in Christ Jesus? Because there's only two groups of people in the world, those in Christ and those not yet in Christ. For the law of the Spirit, verse 2 says, of life has set you free, where? In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. So then Paul says, and he writes to the Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? 
unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Do you, know, do you see how the, Paul, the apostle doesn't just blanket everybody and say, oh, all children of God, you know, you were born in this nation, you were born in a certain family, you've done these certain things, you're good. He says, you need to take inventory, everyone do inventory, am I in Christ? Well, how do I know? Do you love God more than you love you? Do you love Christ more than you love you and your family? Do you love and long to obey his word? Do you love his church? I mean, love his church sacrificially. This is all evidence of something has happened in me, and I love him because he first loved me, and I love what he loves because he loved the church, and he gave himself for her, Paul says, and so why would I not love what he loves? Isn't it amazing when two people fall in love and, and they start to share interests that they didn't have before? Or how'd that happen? Well, I didn't really like this or that or whatever, but then I met them and I love them and I want to be with them and they enjoy this and so now I enjoy that. I just didn't know about it until I met them. That's how God works us in relationships. Have you received the encouragement that comes from being in and belonging to Christ and his body? This encouragement from in Christ, it brings unity. It brings unity in the church. Paul also says, if there is any comfort from the love of Christ, or because, or since there is comfort that comes from the love of Christ, this is divine comfort. Paramuthion is the word. That God's love in people's heart, it produces a spiritual unity in their lives. This is the idea of coming close and whispering tender words of love. Okay, so this isn't just the yelling coach. Knock it off. Oh, this, listen, you, you know, there's times when it's quiet. And this love draws near and stoops down and whispers into the ear truth and love. Tender words, not words of condemnation, but words of love and mercy who experienced this kind of love in the New Testament, my mind goes to the woman at the well. Jesus, the sinless son of God, descendant of David, oh, he could have he just let the Samaritan woman have it. You are wrong theologically. Your people are wrong. You Look how you're living. And he would have been justified and right to do that. He could have done that and not had anything, you know, no log in his own eye. But what did he do? He sat down at the well, and he spoke softly to her. Can I have a drink of water? This is our example. This is Jesus. He, he, this woman experienced the love of God in Christ. He confronted her, but he also comforted her. Nothing can separate us who are in Christ from the love of God. Romans 8, 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that not provide comfort? Yes. 
You know, are you not entertained? Right? Are you not comforted? Then look at it again. If you say no, then preach that to your heart. The apostle of love. That's John. He was transformed and he writes in 1 John chapter 3. You can just hear him still overwhelmed. An old man probably in his 90s and he still can't get over, he hasn't gotten over what the Lord did in Christ for him and changed him. And he says, see, behold, check this out. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be, it's amazing, called children of God. We're called children of, and so we are. We're not just called children of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what, will, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And now see what John does, and he connects this. You understand who you are. You make a right evaluation according to truth. Then there's a corresponding outworking of this truth. What you believe, it, it factors into how you behave. And everyone, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. It changes us from the inside out. So have you received the love, the comfort from the love of Christ? And then thirdly, the fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Fellowship in the Holy Spirit. And this is the word koinonia. This is the word for partnership. This is when two people look at an opportunity and they consider their, you know, skill set, their abilities, their financial assets, and they say, you know what, there's a need here, and I think if we go into business together, we could actually meet a need. You have these strengths, I have these strengths, we put those together, I can't do it by myself, but if we put those together in this partnership, we can meet a need in this community, or we can, we can take care of this. Okay. That's this word. It's Fellowship. One of the Spirit's ministries is to produce within each believer a genuine concern and abiding love for all members of God's family. Partnership. Siri shot me down right there. Okay, in a partnership, you share the good times and you share the bad times. In a partnership, you may have you know, a bumper year, and you may have a really dry, sparse year. And partners share in the good, and they share in the difficult. You're one in that endeavor. We've been brought into a vertical partnership, a fellowship in the Holy Spirit, and that's placed us in a horizontal spiritual family, a partnership together, that we are partnered together. We are, that's not really a word, partnered together. Just invented a word. We're in this together, in this family of God. There's a commitment that has been made by those that we belong. Like I'm part of this family. That as elders, we know who belongs, who is on their way in. They're God's working, bringing them into this family. And it doesn't make us better than anybody. It's just a commitment. In a day and age when there's not a lot of commitment that lasts. But we're not taking our 
you know, cues from our culture. We look at scripture, we, we do our best to understand it rightly, and humbly, Lord, help us to obey immediately. Not wait, not delay, that's disobedience. First Corinthians 6, Paul says in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are, Christian, you are not your own. Why not? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He paid the price for my life with his own blood. Why would I live for me? 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the, here it is again, fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's Paul's prayer over these people. In the Christ, the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that through the work of Christ, we're brought into the fellowship of believers, we're made part of the family of God. We're not our own, but we belong both body and soul in life and in death to him. Think about this. We do not live for ourselves, but for the glory of the Lord and the good of others. How then can you offend a spiritually dead person? Paul would submit that he died to his old way of life on the road to Damascus, that the Spirit of God brought him into a new way of living and enabled him to live a life that was pleasing to God, and he would do and will do the same for us. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he says this, that Jesus died for all. Okay, so there's this wide open that I can stand in this pulpit week after week and say that Christ died for you. Who did he die for? Sinners. He died for all, but now he draws the net in a little bit. And he says that those who live, that's a different group now. That's a group coming out of everyone. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you catch what he's saying there? That everyone was living for themselves. Christ died for everyone, but there are some people who put their faith and trust in Jesus and they come alive, not to live for themselves with Jesus added, but their whole life in eternity is reoriented. It's changed by his sovereign grace. In another way, he wrote to the Galatians, about his spiritual death that happened. And he said, I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. How much did he love you, Paul? He gave himself for me. How much does he love you? He gave himself for you. Not for you to have Jesus on the side of my life. But for you to, what I said earlier, give your life in exchange for life that never ends. Your temporary life given to Christ, he gave his life and he took it back again that resurrection morning to give life that never ends to everyone who repents and trusts in him alone. Have you received the fellowship in the Holy Spirit? And lastly, he puts these two together in tenderness and compassion. Tenderness and compassion. This is a compassionate affection for others. So a child of God has been given, they've received tenderness 
and compassion, what are they supposed to do with those qualities? Hoard it, all mine, you know? All the tenderness, give me, your, give me more. No, tenderness and compassion, that will promote unity in the body of Christ. That'll promote unity in a marriage of believers. That'll promote unity in a marriage where the spouse is not yet a believer and one spouse is. Tenderness. We've seen this word before. Splanknon. Okay, spleen comes out of this. Splanknon. It's bowels. Remember when we talked about this back in chapter 1, verse 8 of Philippians? That, that for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's that word, like it's deep, it's abiding. I love you with the, not, you know, a gross affection. It's the affection of Christ. It's this tenderness. He longed to be reunited with him. Tenderness is not synonymous with weakness. It's not synonymous with being a pushover. Wait a second, I thought you guys were Christians. Aren't you just supposed to say yes to everything and love everybody? No, let's be reminded, God's love is not a permissive love. It's not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. So we're not to be pushovers because we are supposed to love so-called everybody. That's not what Paul's doing. He loves them and he's getting to the point. Jesus was able to perfectly minister to children, to minister to the sick, the diseased, the rebellious, the outcasts, the religious leaders. He knew when he needed to be, how to deal with all of those different people. And he spoke the truth in love. He was tender, but he was not weak. One word, angels were waiting to deliver him. And he didn't need the angels. When he was suspended on the cross, he didn't need any help if he wanted and would have chosen to just be done with this and done with us. He chose and his tenderness was exposed and revealed on the cross that his dying breath was forgive them. That's not weakness. That's strength under control. That's meekness. That's power accomplishing a divine task set in motion before eternity began. Now, how would Paul be writing authoritatively about tenderness and compassion? I mean, do you remember this guy? You remember Saul of Tarsus. Go back with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. Here's the account in, in this uh, section of the church growing. At the end of chapter 6, uh, Stephen is preaching. He's one of the men chosen to serve as, in the church, in, in the office, as a, as a, um, in the role of a deacon. And he's preaching, he's preaching Christ. Uh, at the end of chapter six, everybody's looking on Stephen and they see him and all of a sudden, all of the council sees that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. No special effects. All of a sudden they're looking at him and it's, it reminds them he's been preaching of Moses and his face begins glowing like Moses when he came down from the mountain 
And what are they going to do? How are they going to respond? They know their Bibles. They knew their history. They knew their Old Testament. They just get more mad at him. They get more upset with him. One of them is Saul of Tarsus. Verse 51, chapter 7. Here's where Stephen's coming down to the point of his message, the making his main point and applying. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So he's talking about Jesus. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these, th these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. You, you see the imagery here of how angry they are? This is, this is like demonic level fury. When someone's this mad, they're out of control. What has he done to them? He's just told them the truth. He's just told them, he's just preached to them the gospel. But he, here's the contrast, verse 55, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus. Notice, not sitting at the right hand of God, but standing at the right hand of God. But they crowd out, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, tenderness and compassion. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. All of their fury anger and rage and what does 8-1 the next verse say there he is there's the guy we're studying his letter to the philippians but saul and saul approved of his execution and what does he see stephen dying showing mercy grace and forgiveness. Turn over to Acts chapter 9 because on the road to Damascus Jesus Jesus meets up with Saul of Tarsus and he's still filled with rage. Now he has all of the letters. He's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So now he's on his way to Damascus. Now verse three of Acts nine, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I've never even met you, Jesus. When you, Saul, 
oversaw the death of Stephen, you're persecuting my church, I feel it, it's me. When we talk badly of other people in the church of Jesus, who are we speaking against? Him. When we're showing love to the least of these, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, our church family, who are we showing love to? Him. He is closely connected. And yet, what doesn't Jesus do? Lightning bolts, hailstones, fire from heaven and brimstone. No, he doesn't do that. He blinds him. And then he sends someone in verse 15. He goes and he gets Ananias. And the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For listen, Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And you know what Ananias did? Okay. I'll go. I'll show kindness to this terrorist. I'll show the love of Christ. I'll show him hmm, tenderness and compassion. Why? Because Ananias was better than everybody else? No, because he had been shown tenderness and compassion. Compassion can also be translated mercy. Loved ones, have you experienced the love of Christ? Have you experienced the love of Christ through someone else showing you mercy like this? Where you knew you offended them, you wronged them, and you knew they had every right to expose you and condemn you and go after you and they showed you mercy. How'd that make you feel? If you have pride in you, it angers you. If our pride has been addressed through the cross and the resurrection, we're reminded of this is what God has shown me in Christ. Amen. This tenderness and compassion Luke 23, 34, the final breaths of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And what were they doing right beneath him? Casting lots for his garments. That's how much they thought of him. They thought nothing of him. Who's gonna get his garment? Paul would write later, Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Will you let that sink in if you have not yet turned and trusted in Jesus? That he's not waiting on sinners to get their act together. He's not waiting on you to know enough about the Bible. He's not waiting on you to, well, first I need to, you know what, be baptized, join a church, take communion. No, no, no. Communion is reserved for those who have been saved, have followed in baptism, and have confessed sin. So even when we come together as a church family and we think about tenderness and compassion and fellowship and love and all of the encouragement in Christ, am I rightly showing that to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I rightly showing that to my family? How do I need to be right with God? Vertical and horizontally and we deal with it oh God is so good and gracious to bring us to the table and to do this we're most like God when we forgive have you experienced this forgiveness is there someone listen to me loved ones is there someone in your life that you're still holding on to bitterness and you will not forgive them guess who is in prison 
you. They did me. They stop. Yes, that may be completely true. Go back to the cross and what we did to Jesus. Start there. We don't diminish it and we don't dismiss it. We go back and we remember a broken body and shed blood. It cost him his life. So we're not ignoring that. God is not ignoring our suffering, our pain, what has been done against us. But there's actually a place that we can go with all of the hurt, all of the bitterness, all of the sorrow, and it doesn't help to get vengeance. We have to say, I got to give it to you, Lord. And here's what's happening, loved ones. You're not saying it didn't happen and it doesn't matter and God doesn't care. You're saying, I'm not the judge, jury, and executioner. Because if that law and that standard was applied, I would be dead a long time ago, deserved rightly. But God has shown me mercy. So I want them to know your mercy. I want to not forget Stephen. I want to not forget Jesus. I want to not forget the Apostle Paul. And God, help me to understand it and practice it out in the hard relationships, in the difficult areas of my own heart and my own life. And help me to work through those relationships and the brokenness and give it to you. And what are we saying when we forgive? We're taking that cause, that case, that crime, that offense, and we're not dismissing it, and we're not putting it under the rug. We're simply handing it over to a higher court. We're handing it over to the judge who's always been on the throne, is on the throne, and will always be on the throne. And he showed us mercy. And in these testimonies, when you realize when people show mercy and they show forgiveness, they're not saying it doesn't matter. They're saying, I want you to know the one that ultimately matters. And I've told you about Corey Tim Boom. Suffered through the Holocaust. Her family tried to help smuggle Jews out. And they were arrested and her father was killed and her brother was killed and her sister was killed. And she was released mistakenly right before it ended. And there she walks out of Auschwitz. And the Lord begins to heal her and she begins to share her story. And that night she's sharing her story and she looks back and she sees at the end the man coming up that she knew that was a German guard in one of these camps. And he comes to her and he says, Fraulein, that's a wonderful story that you tell of forgiveness. I too have received this forgiveness. And she said, I, I was paralyzed. I was stuck. How glibly all of the forgiveness and mercy came off my lips. And there he stands in front of me. And I don't know if he knew me or not, but I remember him and it's all stuck. And she said, I didn't know what to do. And the uh, spirit gave her the ability to stretch her hand forward. And she says, in that clasp, the love of God overwhelmed her because she took the message that she knew was true and she practiced it, she put it into practice. She rightly evaluated Christ and the cross and the resurrection and his forgiveness and his mercy and his tenderness and his compassion. And instead of hoarding it, thinking that that would help her, she gave it. And that's when she was healed. 
And that's when she was delivered. And that's when she went from knowing about the love of God to experiencing the love of God. And it transformed her life. This isn't for the easy cases only. This is for every relationship that we have. This does not permit sin and wrongdoing. It simply places it to the higher court. And we then, as the people of God, can evaluate and listen to what Paul would write to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Okay, so take out the trash. That's what he's saying. Why are you keeping the trash of bitterness and hoarding it as if it's prized that I, I don't know who I would be without this bitterness in my life? Take it to the cross, Get rid of it. Let God deal with it. And then live in this light. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And Peter would write, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, put this at the top. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Just imagine a church family that lived saying, God, help me to, to live this out for every single member of this family. And you know what is going to happen? That's going to overflow to a community that's hurting. Our world is hurting. Communities, cities are hurting. Another week of awful crimes here in our country, other around the world, lives taken, How are we functioning as a church? Above all, keep loving one another. Earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You evaluate what's been given to you. Have you personally confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's the starting place for every one of us. How have you experienced these grace, these gifts of grace in your life? How have you experienced these gifts of grace from ministry, from other followers of Christ in your life? And then it doesn't stop there. Who do you need to share these gifts of grace with this week? Who is it? As we pray and as we sing and as we come together at the Lord's table, that's the question for us. Who am I withholding the love of God in Christ? Who am I not sharing that with? And if you say, Spirit, you, you show me, who am I having a hard time with? Who am I forgetting on purpose? He will help you. And you don't have the ability, and nor do I, to cover with grace. So that's when we say, help. Tenderness and compassion, this is no fighting posture. This is surrender. All your vital or the, the spleen, it's, it's right here. That's, what, that's, that's life in Christ. It's saying, I'm not gonna fight my own battles. I'm gonna trust you. You fight the battles and thank you for conquering my heart. 
Let's stand together. Our citizenship in Christ, it comes with privileges and it comes with responsibilities. And God willing, next week, Stephen will walk us through the apostles' expectation of our responsibilities because of all that we've been given. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for what you have given to us in Christ Jesus. Oh, you have come alongside us and I deserve to be condemned and destroyed, but instead, you have consoled my heart. You have encouraged my heart in Christ. Lord, you have given comfort from the love of Christ. You have given graciously a fellowship in the Holy Spirit, fellowship with you, Lord, and a fellowship with your people. And you have given a tenderness and compassion that I could not come to on my own. And I thank you and I praise you. Father, as a people, we want other people to come into the knowledge, the saving knowledge of the truth, Lord. We want other people today to come to the point like Saul did on the road to Damascus and say, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus, and that they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus alone, and that they would receive the gift of life that never ends, and it's only found in Christ. And Father, as your people, help us to live out the gospel practically to encourage one another, always remembering the body broken and the blood shed. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.